Gospels, please open them to Ruth chapter 4. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses of this final chapter in our book. We will wrap up next week by looking at the final uh, nine verses. But this morning we will look at Ruth chapter 4 verses 1 through 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malian. And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. You may be seated. And as you do, let us together go to the Lord and ask for his help as we come to his word. Father God, we do ask, as we just sang, that you would speak, that you would shape and fashion us into the likeness of Christ, our great Redeemer. They would use your word to continue to build your kingdom, to declare your glory, to declare the wonderful reality that there is a Redeemer and he is none other than Jesus Christ. May, it, may your servant be empowered by your spirit to proclaim your word with faithfulness and boldness and may your people be empowered by that same spirit to take your word and to apply it to their lives we pray in Christ's name amen when most people think of the book of Ruth they think of it as a romantic love story a guy and a gal meet under the oddest of circumstances hit it off fall in love sidestep the obstacles and live happily ever after. It almost sounds like the perfect Hallmark Channel story. Gleaning for love, the story of Ruth and Boaz. If anyone takes that and runs with it, I get copyright claims. But the problem is, the book of Ruth is not a story about romance. There are no clues of there being love at first sight when their eyes first met one another. There are no suggestions that Ruth and Boaz are sending signals back to, 
back to each other with one of them missing it or not quite getting it. Romance is not the interest of this story. Now, don't get me wrong. Love certainly is the interest of the story, but it is a better love than romance. The love in Ruth that we see, particularly here in chapter 4, is the covenant love, the steadfast love, the faithful, persevering, and sacrificial love of one for another. And it ultimately displays for us the love that God has for his people. We have already witnessed such love in this book already, in the words and the work of Ruth to leave her country and to cling and hold fast to Naomi. We've seen it in the similar words and work of Boaz to show generosity and abundant compassion to a foreigner like Ruth. And now we see it on full display as Boaz follows through on the promise that he left Ruth with on the, fleshing, the threshing floor the night before. Where he said, if he will not redeem it, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Boaz demonstrates true covenantal love by redeeming Ruth and also Naomi. And in doing so, he ultimately demonstrates how God works out his redemption through the sacrificial love of a redeemer. That's God works out his redemption through the sacrificial love of a redeemer. You may notice that the outline sheet is blank this morning. My, my points over the course of this week were highly unstable, so they missed the printing deadline. But here are the two points. The first, the loss in selfish rejection. And then second, the gain in selfless redemption. That's the loss in selfish rejection and the gain in selfless redemption. Basically, we're going to look at the two main characters in this part of the story. The two contrasting characters. The nameless redeemer and Boaz. The former lost considerably when he rejected redemption in the name of self-preservation and self-security. The latter gained considerably when he accepted redemption in the name of self-sacrifice and steadfast love. Which then begs the question for you and I this morning, which option will we embrace? But before we jump in, I kind of have two and a half points, because I have a half point to begin. I simply want to set the scene as we enter into chapter four. Because if you remember, chapter three ends with this kind of disappointing cliffhanger. There's been the scene on the threshing floor, and it's apparent that Boaz is a redeemer. But there's another redeemer. And he has first dibs. And Boaz, in his high character, is unwilling to let this man miss out on his opportunity. But on the flip side, Boaz is not going to let this matter simply just resolve itself whenever it will. He says there's going to be a resolution. And so with the new day, Boaz goes to the city, to the city gates where the leaders and the elders would often sit and discuss and deliberate both social matters and legal matters. You can almost picture it like a city hall. And as a worthy man of good standing in the community that Boaz was, we shouldn't be surprised to find him seated at the gate. He was probably a regular there. What is surprising is one more of these divine coincidences that takes place. 
For just as Ruth just so happened to show up at Boaz's field, and just as coincidentally as Boaz happened to show up to his own field, who strolls into the city in the morning? The text says, and behold, look, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. For reasons that we have no idea, the Redeemer ventured into the city on this particular morning, the morning right after Boaz had made the promise, I will resolve this issue. The wait is not going to be long. And so what does Boaz do? Like a good Presbyterian, Boaz calls a session meeting. And then he makes sure there's a quorum present. Verse 2, he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And they sat down. This should really warm all of our Presbyterian hearts. Or at least the hearts of the elders and the deacons. We have biblical precedent for doing things decently and in order. But all jokingly aside, this does demonstrate the character of Boaz. He is going to see not only this matter gets resolved quickly, but it's going to get resolved rightly. It's going to get done upstanding in the eyes of the law. There's going to be no corners cut. It's going to be good and official and in order. And so from here, Boaz presents the case of redemption before the Redeemer. And as well as the elders of the city. And he, it's basically a two-part plan. Redeeming the land, redeeming the line. Redeeming the land is the obvious one. Buy the land that Elimelech owned in order to keep it in the family as their inheritance. Which is a huge deal in Israel. Nobody wants to die without their inheritance going to someone else in the family. And then redeeming the line points to the spirit of, not the letter of, a leveret marriage found in Deuteronomy 25, where a brother would, for, on behalf of the deceased, take the brother's widow and produce an heir for the name of the brother and keep the name and the inheritance alive in the community. And that's the redemption plan that Boaz presents in front of the Redeemer. Redeem the line, redeem the land. And so with this in mind, then we come to the first point. The loss in selfish rejection. While he may have thought he was winning, by turning down the opportunity before him, the nameless redeemer actually walks away the biggest loser. You may remember a few weeks back as we looked at Ruth chapter 1. And I mentioned how Orpah, she serves as the foil to Ruth. She turned back, whereas Ruth forged ahead. She left Naomi, whereas Ruth clung to her. She chose Moab and its gods, whereas Ruth chose Israel and Yahweh. And what we see here in chapter 4 is very similar. The nameless redeemer is the foil to Boaz. He's going to be the one to lose, where Boaz will gain. His interests, we see, are going to be self-motivated, whereas Boaz are self-denying, self-sacrificial. So while these two men may come from the same family, from the same town, they could not be any different. They are not cut from the same cloth. And so what do we notice about this Redeemer? First is that he is selfish. Initially, we, we almost want to rejoice because it sounds like the man is ready to step up, 
redeem the line, redeem the land of Elimelech. He's ready to take the moral responsibility. He hears the deal, at least part A. He likes what he hears. And he quickly says, it's mine, I will redeem it. Sign me up. And this is probably what his thinking is. I get a piece of land that belonged to a family member at a budget cost. I get to earn whatever profit I can gain from this land for myself. And as a result, I get to enlarge my inheritance in Israel. Part A sounds like all win. There's no risk in this deal. There's no financial burden threatening to destroy the whole thing. It's a slam dunk to grow his wealth, his fame, his future in Bethlehem. If he's already rich, this only stands to make him richer. If he's not quite rich, this gets him on the road to rich. How often are you and I operating similarly to the Redeemer? How often is our willingness willingness to maybe step in and serve hinging on a what's in it for me mindset? Helping, serving, showing compassion are easy when we stand to gain from it. But what happens when the outlook suddenly looks more like potential loss? Maybe we are like the Redeemer, who when part B comes, his heart gets exposed. Because Boaz says, the day that you buy the field, you get Ruth with it, to perpetuate the name of the day. The inclusion of Ruth and the moral obligation to raise an heir through her suddenly makes the deal go from all win to all lose in his mind. And he can't run away fast enough. He quickly changes from, I will redeem it, to, ah, I can't redeem it. For if I redeem it, I'll impair, literally destroy my own inheritance. Suddenly he can't do it. Suddenly the price is too rich for his blood. Maybe it's because Ruth is a Moabite, and she brings a potential social stigma at the family dinners, at the family reunions. Or maybe he already has children, and this is only going to complicate the matter. Or maybe he has no children and no prospects of a wife, and this child who bears the name of Elimelech is the only child he has. Then all that he's built up goes to this child. That's why he says, I might destroy my inheritance. Redeeming Ruth risks destroying everything this man had been or is currently working towards. And hopefully we can start to hear the emphasis of this man. It is me, myself, and I. Bruce Waltke puts it this way. In other words, the man is willing to buy Naomi's field when it enhances his fame and enriches his fortune. But he exposes his self-centered motives by being unwilling to sacrifice financially, to save the name of Elimelech and Malin, and to protect their defenseless widows. He's not willing to sacrifice. He's not willing to pay the cost. And because he is unwilling, and because of his selfish motives, we find the second thing that we should notice, he loses. 
First and most literally, he loses his shoe. It's his signature and proof of rejection. He would have walked home as a one-shoed man. He also loses out on Ruth, which I've mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes right after Proverbs, giving us a signpost to the Proverbs 31 woman. She's Ruth. He misses out on that excellent wife, more precious than jewels, in whom the heart of her husband trusts. But most notably, he loses out on making a name for himself, what he is seemingly trying to do in declining. And notice how this man goes nameless throughout this entire narrative. He is the original he who shall not be named for all my Harry Potter friends. He is called the Redeemer in verses 1, 3, 6, and 8. But it's ironic because he's the Redeemer who doesn't redeem. He's not fulfilling his job. But worse yet, we find what he's called, not by Boaz, but by the writer in verse 1. It's documented in the English as, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And while we might not think friend sounds that bad, it's not the most accurate interpretation. In real time, Boaz probably used the man's name, whatever it was. But the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses intentionally to leave it out. And instead, he places this Hebrew construction of two words that rhyme and yet also mean absolutely nothing. I typically don't speak Hebrew in sermons because I'll butcher them, but this one's easy, and hopefully you'll hear it. The man is called Poloni Almoni, which the best English rendering is Joe Schmo or Mr. So-and-so. For all of you NFL draft fans, he is Mr. Irrelevant. The guy who gets picked at the very last round on the very last day, who probably will never make a name for himself in the NFL, I'm not saying this to be mean, this is just reality, will never make a name for himself and probably will never even make the team. So the irony is not lost out on the, the, the Redeemer goes through this story as Joe Schmo. He's trying to protect his name and in trying to protect his name, he loses his name. He enters the story ready to gain a name beyond recognition in Israel and he leaves as Joe Schmo. And this is where he loses most of all. As Ian Duguid writes, by missing out on a share of the biggest legacy of all, a place in God's plan of salvation. And just like Orpah, maybe short term this worked out for him. Maybe he had an inheritance and it was secure and he passed it on to his sons. Maybe he had multiple sons. Maybe his wife was even a lovely lady. But still, this man lost. He lost because he could only think of himself. What he stood to lose, what he stood to gain, what served his best interest, not the interest of someone else. And again, I ask us, myself, the question, how often are you and I like this nameless, self-motivated man? We are only eager or interested to serve or to minister when the cost is low. We are only willing to step up when the risk is manageable or easily absorbed. Or sometimes we 
are in it and we bail at the first sight of there being a high cost or a threat. And I'm not limiting this to any one particular sphere. This can be our attitude in a whole host of things, in marriage, in parenting, in ministry, in serving those around us, in engaging the lost, in simply following the call that God has placed on us in Christ to be his disciples. We can look at potential loss or threat and think, not worth it. We look for excuses instead of ways to sacrifice. We hope and pray, Lord, get someone else to step in, just not me. And in doing so, we run the risk of losing, just like Joe Schmo. It could be the blessing of sacrifice in the here and now. Or a blessing that we would receive later on down the road. Or it could even be losing out on a reward that would be waiting for us in the kingdom of God. But at the very least, we miss the opportunity to show the sacrificial love that God has for us to those around us. Whatever the case, may we not be like Mr. So-and-so, who lost because he rejected the opportunity to show care and compassion in the name of selfish ambition. Instead, let us be like Boaz, which brings us to our second point, the gain in selfless redemption. At a potentially great cost to himself, Boaz sacrificially redeemed. This leaves him walking away, not as the biggest loser, but the biggest winner. And this is despite the fact that Boaz is the man with the most to lose. He's the wealthier of the two. He's the one with the standing, the good standing in the community. And yet he's more than willing to throw it all aside to risk it all, to assume whatever cost or risk to take Ruth as his wife and redeem the line of Elimelech. And so same question, what do we notice about Boaz, especially compared to Joe Schmo? Whereas Mr. So-and-so was selfish, Boaz was selfless. We see his self-sacrificing nature in the, the speech that he gives after the sandal is exchanged. Listen to what he says in verses 9 and 10. He says, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belongs to Kilian and Malin. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead is in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gates of his native place. Boaz redeems not with an eye towards securing his future, towards satisfying his desires, towards feeding his ego, but rather with an eye towards protecting, saving. In this case, Naomi, Elimelech's line, and Ruth. He's probably calculated the risks. He's probably considered both the financial and the social cost it would be to bring to to solidify this entire deal. There is a threat to his entire inheritance in this deal. He could lose everything. All his wealth could ultimately go to Elimelech, not to Boaz. All his social standing could evaporate if someone were to take offense 
that the fact that he brought in this Moabite foreigner to be his wife. The great name he had, the great heritage could crumble and fall just like that. But such things we see are not his priority. That is not his chief concern. Just as he had done in the field days earlier, just as he had done the very night before on the threshing floor, Boaz is thinking of and willing to sacrifice for Naomi, for Elimelech, and Ruth. He will save the line of Elimelech from fading in obscurity in Israel. A huge deal. That it would not be cut off. That's covenant curse language. Boaz is going to save that line at whatever cost it is to his own line. He's going to protect Naomi and Ruth from, live, from futures that are hopeless, filled with despair. He's not going to allow them to be left to the, themselves, but they're going to have a shelter over them, his shelter for the rest of their days. Boaz is putting all his chips in on the table. Not to win some imaginary pot of wealth, but to sacrificially love and serve his deceased relatives and their extremely vulnerable and hopeless widows. And because he's willing to sacrifice, because he is selfless, we see that Boaz gained. We'll, we'll find more of the specific of what he gained next week as we look at verses 13 through 22. But we get glimpses of it in the blessings that the people sing, declare over Boaz. There's the gain of a legacy, a house within Israel. They say, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. And may your house be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. The inclusions of Rachel and Leah should make sense. They were the matriarchs who bore the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. These women were critical in the establishment of Israel as a nation. The people asked the Lord to bless Ruth and therefore Boaz, just like he blessed these two women. It's the inclusion of Tamar that makes us scratch our head a little bit. If you're not familiar with the story of Judah and Tamar, I'd encourage you to go read Genesis 38. I'll spare you the details. Because if you thought last week was a little bit scandalous, I'll leave you with Genesis 38. It's a similar story to Ruth and Boaz in, in the terms of somebody dies childless, there's an issue of a kinsman redeemer, and there's the call to covenant faithfulness. But that's about where the similarities end. Because whereas Ruth and Boaz are virtuous and worthy from beginning to end, Judah and Tamar are not. They are immoral, they are manipulative, they are deceptive. And yet, despite all that, God still used and worked through their selfish motivations to build up not just the house of Israel, but the house of Judah, to which Boaz was a product. And so they're asking the Lord in a similar situation of a kinsman redeemer to do the same thing that you did with Tamar with Ruth. Build up the house of Judah. Build up the house of Boaz. And in doing so, this house and this legacy will produce a worthy or highly regarded name. You'll notice that sandwiched between the prayer to be like Rachel and Leah and to be like Tamar is may you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah and renowned in Bethlehem. And the assumption is he already is acting that way, and we've seen it is true. 
He is generous. He is a high character. He is faithful. Boaz is a worthy man. And his worthiness, we'll see him celebrated not only in this present day, at this present moment, but in the days, the years, and even the generations that are to come. He will ultimately gain a name and a legacy, not by protecting his name and legacy, but being willing to risk all of it sacrificially for Ruth and for Naomi. By being willing to lay it down in order to serve and sacrificially love another. Are you and I willing to be like Boaz? Are you willing to serve and love sacrificially? First, those within the household of God. It was read for us at the end of, particularly at the end of Galatians 6, earlier this morning. But then also those outside the house of God. Are you willing to forego your attempts to make a name for yourself? And instead willing to trust in God's ability to make a name for you. His name. To trust in his plans and purposes. Even if they run contrary to what you desire. To what you think is best. To what your ambitions may be. Or to put it in Jesus' words. Are you willing not to be served but to serve? Because that's what he explicitly said. Is how you make a great name for yourself. You serve. But while we should seek to be like Boaz, the truth is we are not Boaz. We are not standing in the position to offer redemption. We're Ruth and Naomi, desperately in need of redemption. We need a Boaz to come. We need a Boaz to redeem. We need a Boaz to love us sacrificially, to take on our hopelessness in order to bring us true and lasting hope. We need a Boaz to come and pay the cost. And praise be to God, we have such a Boaz. We have not a righteous redeemer, but the righteous redeemer, Jesus Christ. Of Jesus, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was Boaz, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He took on the cost by taking our poverty of sin, our weakness, our helplessness, that we would know his riches, the abundant riches of his grace. And what did Jesus gain as a result of his selfless redemption? Like Boaz, Jesus gained a name. But unlike Boaz, it's not simply a name of mere human significance. It is an eternally exalted name. Again, Paul writes of Jesus in Philippians 2 at the end of that hymn, probably the earliest hymn of the church, where he walks us through Christ's humiliation his redemption, and then he gets to his exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You and I find our redemption in Jesus Christ. You and I see and experience his sacrificial, covenant-keeping love for us when we look at the cross and see what he willingly paid to redeem us. And then we find that you and I are given a name a name in Christ, 
Not an earthly name that will ultimately fade, but the name of God eternally stamped on and declared over us. Jesus is our Boaz. He is our Redeemer. If you don't know him as your Redeemer, would you cry out for him to redeem you? Ask him to make you his own by applying his blood, his finished work on the cross. That high cost it took to redeem his people. He'll be glad to do it. And if you do know him as your redeemer, would you delight in him? Would you sing of his praises? The praises of the one who sacrificially loved you by dying for you. Would you glory in, as we're going to sing in just a moment, not your works, not your ability or your character or your name, but in his name. And in the wonderful God-glorifying works that he is producing in you, not by your strength, but by the strength of his spirit at work in you. And then, would you seek by that strength to be like Boaz? To demonstrate sacrificial love. To be willing to leave it all behind for the sake of Christ, your Redeemer. For the sake of serving and ministering to those around you. Would you in that strength demonstrate a love that is willing to sacrifice and to persevere? A love that mimics our blessed Redeemer's love. God works out redemption through the sacrificial love of our Redeemer. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus, our Redeemer. We have sung his praises. It is his works that has redeemed us. It is his glory that we proclaim. It is his name that we exalt. Forgive us. Where we have, like Joe Schmo, sought to exalt our own name. Where we have only served you when the cost was minimal or non-existent. May we be like Boaz, ultimately be seeking to be like Jesus. Willing to sacrifice, willing to serve, willing to display your love to those around us, to those that you have put under our care, to the glory of your name, to the building of your church, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.